Welcome, everybody. This is Movie Geeks United. I'm Dean Treadway, and tonight we're going to be celebrating the 35th anniversary of one of the great neo-noir film classics of the 1980s, Cutter's Way, and we're delighted to be joined in our discussion by its star, the always terrific John Hurd. In the film, directed by Czech filmmaker Yvonne Passer, Hurd was tapped to play Alex Cutter, a Vietnam War veteran who's been scarred both mentally and physically by his war experience. Living in drunken squalor with his depressed wife, Mo, played brilliantly by Lisa Eichhorn, Alex Cutter is shaken back into life when his best friend, a lazy sailboat salesman named Richard Bone, played by Jeff Bridges, one night accidentally witnesses a man disposing of a dead body in a dark L.A. alley. After the girl's corpse is discovered, Bone is exhaustively questioned by the police but contends he didn't really see anything. Slowly, though, Bone does begin to realize that it's the powerful oil tycoon, J.J. Cord, played with menace by Stephen Elliott, who is responsible for the girl's death. But because the man is so wealthy, Bone doesn't think it wise to pursue the matter. But Cutter, with half of his body still crippled from the war, feels a powerful need to bring the man to justice as kind of a payback for all the rich men who sent soldiers to fight wars so they could get even richer. Heard brings an acerbic power to the physically demanding role, playing Cutter as an alternately repellent and heroic pirate, hungry for something true and right. Heard had been acting on the New York stage all throughout the 70s and had begun doing movies late in that decade, starting with Joan Micklin Silver's ensemble post-hippie comedy, Between the Lines, and then continuing to work with Silver in an adaptation of Anne Beattie's novel, Chilly Seas of Winter, that movie, a chronicle of a failed obsessive romance co-starring Mary Beth Hurt, was ultimately titled Head Over Heels upon its 1979 release, but then Silver and the studio, United Artists, pulled the film, rejiggered it with a new downbeat ending, which was different from the happy one in the book in the original movie, and then re-released it in 1982 with the original title, Chilly Scenes of Winter. And from there, it garnered a fervent cult following. Heard followed that with a notable portrayal of Jack Kerouac in the beatnik biopic Heartbeat, co-starring Nick Nolte and Sissy Spacek. But it's his performance as Alex Cutter that's brought him the most praise. The film is feels like it's only now getting the high reputation it deserves, having recently been re-released on Blu-ray by Twilight Time. And uh, most critics agree that Hurd's ferocious performance really should have netted him the Best Actor Oscar that year. Hurd has hundreds of credits to his name, and the list of great movies he's contributed to is quite impressive. On the Yard, Heaven Help Us, Paul Schrader's Cat People, Chud, uh, Big, Awakenings, uh, The Trip to Bountiful, Beaches, Rambling Rose, In the Line of Fire, the great and neglected classic Mind Walk with Lee Alden and Sam Waterston, uh, The Pelican Brief, Snake Eyes, uh, Ed Harris's movie of Pollock, uh, The Animal Factory, directed by uh, Steve Buscemi, Sweetland, and of course Home Alone, for which he's probably most famous for playing Macaulay Culkin's father. And he's made great contributions to television in the past decades, most notably in HBO's comedy series Entourage, in Fox's drama series Prison Break, 
and in David Chase's groundbreaking series, The Sopranos, where he played the troubled New York detective Vin McKazian. But tonight, though we do touch on chilly scenes of winter and The Sopranos, we're concentrating mostly on Cutter's Way and his relationship with his co-stars, Jeff Bridges and Lisa Eichhorn, his interplay with director Yvonne Passer, and his insights into this complex character's motivations. It's a funny and often frank self-assessment Mr. Hurd offers up to us, and we hope you'll enjoy listening in on our conversation. Here we go. I know that um, the director of Cutter's Way, Ivan Passer, had uh, first seen you in a production of Othello, that uh, Joseph Papp was putting on in Central Park, and uh, he was pretty insistent having you play Alex Cutter. Uh, did he ever discuss with you exactly why, from that p- particular performance, he thought you'd be perfect for the role? Uh, if he did, I don't remember it, but he did say, why is he for this other boy, Bone? Why he should be for Cutter? And then <laughs> that, the producer, that's a, that's uh, a pretty uh, good check accent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Where is Yvonne these days? I hope he's still with us. I I hope so too. I, I it's funny. I haven't seen a Yvonne Passer movie in quite some time. So, uh, but uh, I know that the film had a pretty difficult pre-production history. Uh, originally, it was going to be with Robert Mulligan directing, and uh, and then Dustin Hoffman was going to play uh, Alex Cutter. That would have been that would have been interesting. I'm curious, like, when you got first were approached by uh, Yvonne, did you know his work, or, or did you even know the book by Newton Thornburg or anything like that? I, I read the book. I don't know when I read it. I, I, I was friends with Paul Gurian, I think. I became friends with him, probably. I think he the was producer. the first person who approached me. I don't think, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe Yvonne was with him. I, I really don't remember. But uh, it was pretty much Yvonne, I think, who said, uh, let's read him for the part of Cutter. <laughs> and this is funny because I was always peculiar. And uh, <laughs> that 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 happened repeatedly. That I was maybe, as a matter of fact, I remember a, a uh, Newsweek review once that compared me to a crossover between Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Mm. Now that you brought Dustin Hoffman up, which is a pretty pretty that's a mutant man you know that's like <laughs> where, yeah that's how do you how do you mesh those two into one person <laughs> yeah that's that's uh but uh, you know in a way i can see where where they're going with that i mean to me you've always had a kind of a kind of a uh, i guess a kind of a likable cynicism to a lot of your earlier roles in particular uh yeah. um and uh and so I would imagine that you know maybe maybe they had seen you in Chili Scenes of Winter or what it was then Head Over Heels. There's something about the character of Charles in Chili Scenes of Winter that if Charles had actually gone to the war, he might have ended up being like <laughs> like Alex yeah. Cutter. Introducing Alex Cutter. Hey Alex, how do I look? Hey, you look like a fat man on a horse, Georgie. Huh? Rich. Cutter's wife, Mo. The um, Richard Bone fan club is now complete. This, for instance, is a tomato. Food, huh? Yeah, I remember food. People used to have to eat it during the prohibition, didn't they? Occasionally for days on end. Cutter's best friend, 
My charger's got a bad battery, but will I do? <laughs> oh, no, you're too old. <laughs> Richard Bone. He's drunk. I have to give that another try. <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> Their life together wasn't exactly ordinary, but they never bargained for Cutter's fantasy. Is there Richard Bone here? Crushed trachea, fractured skull, 17 years old. That's him. This young friend of yours is pursuing some fantasy of his own and, and includes me. Whatever we do falls under the heading of justice. Dishonorable and gutless. So what are you going to do? <laughs> it's not a question of what I'm going to do. It's a question of what you're going to do with the time you got left. I'd say that you're the one that ought to be very, very careful, not us. You're the witness, remember? I've got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. When you went about starting to forge this character, uh, I would imagine the makeup and the costumings help. The makeup is very... Uh, I, I see that they put like a scar a little bit underneath your eye. A piece of plastic prosthetic is a scar. I believe. Mm-hmm. What was the makeup guy's name? He was a savior. Can't remember. Mm-hmm. He later married Lisa Oycorn. He's a great guy. I can't remember his name. He was the son of somebody very famous. He was famous. Mm-hmm. I'm too old to remember. Uh, all the costuming mm-hmm. must have really helped you get into the role, I would imagine. But also, did you talk to paraplegic war veterans or anything in preparation for it? Uh, no. Actually, I didn't. I was very much... I had been in a couple of uh, Vietnam plays, one of which was called Streamers, and the other one was called GR Point. I had Mm -hmm. seen... um, It was very, very... I don't know if... uh, What's the movie that Robert De Niro and Chris Walken did? I think one one evening... Oh, Deer Hunter? Yeah. Yeah, Deer Hunter. I'd been in for that, and I wasn't right for the walking part. And then... Actually, one evening I saw uh, Bobby De Niro and Chris Walken standing at the, a long bar in a bar that used to be right on Broadway in the 70s. It's a very popular place for actors at one point, big, huge room. And mm-hmm. they were chit-chatting between themselves, and that with them was a actual Vietnam veteran. So the 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 onus was really on me. You know, I, I didn't have any pretensions about being uh, being one of that ilk. You know, I didn't go to mm. Vietnam. I'm glad I didn't. I'm sorry for the guys that did. So it was a much more of a political and uh, socioeconomic, if you will, kind of crisis that I felt very, very responsible for. I felt like, you mm. know, so I wanted to stay very close to the the outrage and the anger in this, what is actually a kind of a affluent guy who grew up, you know, wherever in Santa Barbara or something, which I was totally unfamiliar with. But, you know, yacht clubbing and Bone was sort of a pretty boy around the jet set. And I, I guess I was, uh, you know, I was upper middle class and had been shipped out and came back with half a body. And I was, there wasn't anybody I could really reach out to to say, hey, what, 
happened to you in Vietnam? Has anything like that happened? You know, I'm just asking. So I didn't really know where to go off and search for that. But as actors, we have we had been so familiarized with uh, various screenplays and plays that really brought us up to date. GR Point was very much a play that was done at the Manhattan Theater or whatever it was, and it was actually set in Vietnam. So you learned mm-hmm. the lingo and you learned a lot about what was going on in Vietnam at that particular mm. period. So when he comes back, uh, I focus mostly on his, on his, uh, his outrage, you know, his, mm. you know, saying what he said in the, in the script, you know, that these guys just send others off to their capitalist wars and come back mutilated and hurt and suicidal. And he felt the need to get even, you know, mm. to put J.J. Cord where he belonged in the, trash can along with that poor girl mm. uh, it wasn't so much about it was about Vietnam it was about what had happened to him in Vietnam but there wasn't a whole backlog of Vietnam type stuff yes and I didn't know if it, I was, mean, uh, it wasn't more for the time comical <laughs> yeah I mean you know there's there's lots of humor in it I mean Alex can be pretty un, unmanageable and reprehensible at times but he's also quite funny and I and I guess the humor must have helped you find a way to keep the character likable, uh, you know. Yeah, well, it, I wasn't trying to. I got criticized a bit from friends and so on and so forth for not being hardcore enough or macho enough or something like that. But I sort of saw him as, uh, you know, it wasn't Escape from New York, you know. And, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it was more of a, an upper middle class guy that just had enough education to, to know that what was going down was wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what's what's interesting about the the movie is I, I I've never read the original book but I imagine there's a much more detailed backstory to the relationship between Alex and uh, Richard uh, played by Jeff Bridges and uh, and of course Mo uh, played by Lisa Icorn who I just think is incredible in the movie she's just you're all great at it but uh, but she's heartbreaking in it. Um, so did you and Jeff and Lisa Eichhorn, uh discuss the the backstory uh, very much and can talk a little bit about no, that? No, not much. You know, yeah. uh, actually, Yvonne didn't want a lot of rehearsal. He didn't like uh-huh. uh, He didn't like a lot of it. It's not that he didn't like it. He just thought he didn't need it. You know, he felt like just do it. You know, just go with your gut kind of director that I felt that he was and I was probably the, I was easily the most petulant and the most difficult on the set and uh, <laughs> in what way <laughs> I was a real pain in the ass you know physically and mo- emotionally and mentally I was drinking and I was very caught up in the and the in the uh the kind of the alcoholic lifestyle uh-huh. that uh and then my my wife wanted to and i got my assumption was we were childhood sweethearts and we were bonded and then she comes home with a big couple big bags of groceries and it's like what are you thinking and i kind of wanted to go nuts in that area you know like this mm-hmm. guy had just gone down the path after this holocaust in vietnam of, of total self uh abuse and and alcoholism in the whole nine yards. So, you know, Alex is really going off this time, and, and that, that seemed to be a lot of the, the a lot of the movie. 
was that I was having some sort of paranoid uh, uh, fantasy or something about something that Bones just grunts one afternoon while watching a parade. Right. And that brings to light the triangulation in their relationship and how I'm somebody mm-hmm. that walk, 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 and, you know, you, you know, he's always copping out and running off and not taking responsibility. And here it is in this movie, it sort of has a tragic turn in that respect when he jumps on my wife and she ends up killing herself, but she didn't kill mm-hmm. herself. and. I know that. And the, the the person that was probably the most instrumental to me in the whole process was the producer, Paul Gurian. Mm-hmm. He, he had developed the screenplay, I think, with Jeffrey Fishkin. I read the book, and the book was much more hardcore. They were almost yeah, like... Uh, the impression that I got from the book was that they were kind of like almost white trash. Mm. <laughs> I don't okay. know if I'm right with I could get in trouble for saying that, but... The book just seemed to be much more along the lines of them being a couple of being desperados, you know. And I think mm. I remember the the book opens up with uh, you know Alex going off on some biker or somebody just just being sitting in a bar, being sort of suicidal, you know, taking anybody on and getting the crap beat out of them. And mm. I didn't I didn't get that whole yacht club. Uh, world. So yeah, we were we, we should have. I I think that Lisa and myself I think wanted uh, more discussion and more rehearsal, but Ivan was much more. Uh, you know, Ivan's the, the funny story I have about Ivan Passer is that he would after every take he would say that was wonderful, <laughs> and then he'd, he'd say do it again, and you would go like okay, and he'd say ah that was. That was super. Do it again. And finally, one time I went over to him afterwards and I said, you know, the first take was wonderful and the second take was superb. Why are we doing it again? I mean, if superb and wonderful is pretty good, isn't it? What what else could it be? And he looked at me and after a moment he looked at me and said, it could be fantastic. So (laughs) that was pretty much the way he wrote (laughs) <laughs> I mean that's a that's a lot of the way that say Stanley Kubrick worked, you know. He was always just uh he always was looking for something just different, you know, just uh so I think he trusted his actors, but I was like I was I wasn't good. I was not I was not working a lot in film. I wasn't didn't have the patience. I had one arm tied behind me, I had a, a patch over the other eye, and I was a, I was an asshole. For the most part, standing around waiting for them to light something I didn't appreciate. And you had this wonderful director of photography, Jordan Cromworth, who actually was crippled, if if that's the right word, from an automobile accident. So it was a real test of wills, you know, to to, uh, wait for him to. And then it was again Paul Gurian who came over to me at one point. He said, you have no idea. This man is making you look good. This man is making this movie look fantastic. And And he does. he did make it look fantastic. The 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 film has that dreamy kind of quality uh that uh, that uh, kind of ushered in an era of uh of a different kind of look, a kind of a smoky kind of look to things. Absolutely. Did uh did did Passer and Cronenweth ever discuss their with you their sort of visual strategy for the movie or was that is that something that was out, outside of he was a he was in his own world and he was light years ahead of me and I was just punk. I was just somebody that was 
chomping at the bits because of the dialogue. I was just much more, I guess you'd even say, theatrically oriented. Uh-huh. Now, to me, yeah. it was in the language. You just wanted to get on with it. Yeah, I want, and, I, and I needed to get on with it because it was, it was physically demanding. And then, of course, the person that I was, you know, yelling at was actually physically, into, you know, uh-huh. not, you know, he was actually walking around limping with a cane and, and hunched over because of his the tragedy of his life in an accident. So who is who going to listen to me? I would imagine you used a lot of that anger to you channeled a lot of that anger into the performance. Yeah, you, yeah, I did. But then it's a question of how attractive are you when you're angry? Get into that kind of self consciousness, you know. Like maybe George C. Scott is great when he's angry, but maybe John Heard looks like a you know a, a, a wounded bird or something when he's angry. <laughs> so you know you have to you have to do your homework. You know you have to learn about film. You can't just waltz in and do a movie unless you're Marlon Brando or somebody. It was it was difficult for me and uh I was pissed off because they made me shoot the gun at some stuffed animal that looked ridiculous. I thought that 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 mouse in the water was not you know, come on, give me something like a lion or you know No. What what is what is what does that mean? No dice. What man, no dice. Gave Cord the message, Price gave it to him personally, and that's it. That's all there is. Which is nothing, no response. A murdering bastard. A murdering bastard. Are you fucking. Sorry, Alex, there's no sale, you know? Fuck a murdering bastard! God damn it! You fucking sent me! There's little humorous pieces in the movie. It's a bleak movie, of course, but there's little humorous bits in it that, that sort of uh, add a kind of a surrealism to it, I think, that, that's kind of great. I mean, let's face it, you, you, I think you knocked it out of the park play, playing the role. So it, whatever, whatever uh, and, I, and I think most people do. Uh, uh, but do you think that um, maybe if you had been in a few more films before you had done this, that you would have attacked it differently, or I'd like to say yes, but I was I had been in, and I was just as cantankerous doing them them as I was doing this, and and uh, <laughs> I don't know, I it, I don't know, I don't know. I never yeah. went to Dallas, I never saw myself, and I always wanted to leave and go back to New York City and do a play. Mm. So I hated, I hated L.A. and uh, I didn't want to stay here. Yeah, and I think that that that, that had a tremendous impact on my career, um, mm. better or for worse. And maybe mm. maybe I could have been a better actor, you know, on mm. film. And I was relying too much on my success on stage. And I, yeah. there's no comparison. And people, yes. People try to make this comparison between working in the theater and working on film, and there's no comparison. If you want to be good at anything, you you got to do your homework. Yeah. And I wasn't. I didn't 
learn about lenses. I didn't learn about lamps. I didn't learn about, you know, the time it takes to take the time to take the take and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. it was difficult to work with. And in that respect, I was impatient and intolerant. And these mm-hmm. are, this was my confession. Mm. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll take that's it. probably why I don't work anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you're working all the time. <laughs> no, nah, I, I haven't had a serious job for 10 years. I think my last serious job was on elementary on TV in New York City. Mm. You don't consider Sharknado uh, uh, serious? <laughs> well, Sharknado was great. I love Sharknado. Back to Cutter's way, uh, Pat, uh, you know, Yvonne Passer says that he thinks that the film was assassinated by the studio. That's his word. Uh, and do you think there was a sense of uh, possibly, I know I'm like reaching here, but is there a sense that maybe there was a, it was a movie that needed to be suppressed in some way because of its kind of bold and bald statement about uh, uh, American involvement in, 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 uh, uh, in the war and so forth? And, uh, or do you think it was just, it got poor treatment just due to economics? Because I know it was, it was a United Artists movie and they were going through troubles with Heaven's Gate and so forth. So, an article in the New York Times this past weekend or something about Heaven's Gate and they didn't have the money. And that's what kind of created the classical uh, genre of, of, of movies that they weren't going to, you know, publicize and produce. They kind of created mm-hmm. a separate category for them. And it's kind of gone on from there to probably create the whole indie world of, of, uh, making smaller yep. movies and spending lots and lots and lots of money as compared to what Hollywood spends today making a major motion picture. Yeah. And I think it was it was of that ilk. I mean it wasn't uh-huh. touted to be wasn't touted to be a, a blockbuster, you know uh, I don't know who that no. was. You got, you got Jeff Bridges, but I don't think Lisa was any big and I certainly wasn't any big name, so we were kind of always. I always felt we were always a kind of come behind, come from behind film. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and it did get out there. And some they. I think in this article I read that a friend sent me on Facebook. Some people did see it and they didn't like it. They didn't think it was so great. I read a review uh, this morning from uh, Vincent Canby, uh, who reviewed it. And it seemed like he had not even I, I had not even watched the movie. It really just uh, you know confounded me. Uh, his review. It, he says that the screenplay didn't make any sense, and I said I, I don't see how it could be any more clearer. Uh, so I, I really don't understand any kind of negative uh, reaction to it. But then again. A lot of critics came back when it was retitled Cutter's Way because it was originally titled Cutter's Bo- Cutter and Bone, uh, just for au- the audience here. But when it was retitled and, and re-released, it, it got better reviews, which is kind of yeah. strange. <laughs> which is the same thing with Chilly Scenes of Winter, which was the book it, title by Ann Beatty, and then it came out with Head Over Heels. Yes. And I guess there's just no accounting for taste. Yeah. You know, Cutter yeah. and Bone to me is a much more savvy title and a much hipper kind of presentation and sell Cutter and Bone. I mean, I, I want to go see that just for the title. 
Yeah. And Chili yeah, Peas is a lot more interesting than Head Over Heels. Sounds like an Annette mm-hmm. Funicello and Frankie Avalon movie. <laughs> it must have been, you know, to to bring in Chili Season Winter here for just a second, it must have been very strange for you coming from stage and getting into film. And here it is, your two of your first major films go through some major uh, rejiggering. Uh, yeah, you must have had a very skewed uh, idea of what the film business was. Well, like, they lo- they don't like me. You know, I'm not uh, really useful. Yeah. You know, well, I, I mean, I, mean I, never, I I was so busy hightailing it out of here that uh, I I didn't look back. Yeah. And and I was in a, in in certain respect, I was relieved. You know, I didn't have any idea of what it was like to be in a majorly successful movie. Hmm. I didn't have any idea of what it was like to be recognized on the street or be uh, acknowledged as a, a contender for, you know, um, film parts, big parts, you know, leading parts. Mm. So I, I was, I was on the one hand, I was extremely grateful that as we characterized it in the seventies, we said your, your career either did or didn't get a first class airplane ticket to Hollywood. And mine did, and then I kind of always sort of felt like, well, I kind of came out here and blew it. Mm. Then mm. I had the theater, and thank God I was from New York. because <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I could always go home, you know. I could always go back to the bar on 72nd Street and say, well, you know. Yeah, and, those and assholes. <laughs> my, father, my father always said to me, earn the respect of your peers he said that to me, and I went, what does he mean? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and, uh, my, my, peers, my peers were very much my, my friends and, and fellow actors that worked on the stage. That mm-hmm. was my, those were my peers. So, so I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to stack myself up against Warren Beatty and Robert Redford. So <laughs> it wasn't really that much of a loss, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And our well, generation uh, of was mostly Bobby De Niro and and, and Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're one of the most interesting actors out there, but uh, but your your work in the '80s is just uh, superb. Uh, and even going on to things like uh, you know Mind Walk, and uh, which is one of my favorites of your movies. Uh, wow. uh, you wow. know, you're. Wow. I still think you're doing great stuff. I mean, in in, in the Sopranos, uh, in particular, uh, I think you're you're terrific. I would like to play some great character somehow, some someday, maybe. But I'm old now. <laughs> hey, old old uh, old character actors do some of the great work of all time. So you know. Yeah, I'm looking at change at it before I go, but you know, doesn't seem to be happening. So. I like that's not, it's nice to be remembered to belonging to a certain period of time and uh, let it go at that. Mm. Most people see me, and I'm surprised when they see me on the street and they recognize me from Home Alone. So, I mean, even that's uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, 
I think that uh, I, I think that with Cutter's way and with uh, Chili's who's a winner, uh, also with even on the yard, which uh, I just recently watched on the yard again uh, uh, for the first time on uh, it's on Amazon Prime, um, wow. and uh, I finally got to see that for the first time, and I thought that was very good as well. Uh, and I love Heartbeat too, uh, where you play Jack Kerouac. Uh, I, I think that's that's vastly underrated. Vastly underrated, uh, and of course between the lines, uh, which is uh, another you know fantastic. Your your work with uh, with uh, Joan Micklin Silver was was superb. Can can you talk a little bit about her? Because I don't think a, I don't think enough people know about her work, and uh, I think well, she was like one of the, Joan Darling and Joan Micklin Silver were probably two of the first female directors, and she was directing a, a Paramount, I think it was, with Chili Steens. Yeah. Uh, and that was a big, big deal, man, for to hire a female director. And she wrote with her husband on the yard and and uh, the other one you mentioned, uh, Between the Lines. She was a very quiet director. And mm-hmm. one time I was in the bathtub, Peter Rieger was my buddy in Chili Steens, and, and uh, whenever he came around, I would throw stuff at him and shoot him with the arrow, bow and arrow, or squirt him with the water pistol or, you know, squirt water on him or something. And, 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 uh, John said, John, can we, can we do that again without all the other stuff? Just do the same. Don't throw things at Peter. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? I thought that doing all that stuff was funny. And Joan Micklin looked at me and she said, it's not funny, John. It's just goofy. <laughs> but you still managed to get some of that goofiness in in, in the in the movie, I think. Uh, <laughs> that was that was it for you know Joan and me. It was like goofy. Give me, I'm just goofy. She was. They were great to me, and they're, she's a sweetheart. I love her, and she can be. She can be. Uh, you you think that she's she's not really. You know, she's not liking you or something. She can be sort of standoffish, but she's really just, I think, shy. You know, mm. she's not. Of, she's not of the. Um, how, what? How shall you describe it? The, the uh, auteur director league. You know, she's just a, a, a ordinary kind of gal that has a mm-hmm. guest. And I don't think you're absolutely right. I think she doesn't get any kind of. She doesn't really get Esther Street. And between the lines and stuff and silly scenes and stuff, and she was a pioneer. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, with Cutter's Way? Do you feel like now that it's it's gotten a recent Blu-ray release, uh, sort of a limited edition, and I think it's already sold out. Uh, but do you feel like the moment has arrived where the film is hailed as as the great movie that it really should have been hailed as back in the early '80s? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I haven't kept up with any of that. But uh, the, like I say, a friend of mine sent me a thing on Facebook that there was an article written about uh, D movies, mm-hmm. that the French call them forbidden movies. Mm-hmm. And one of them was about something about garbage or something. And the other one was about was Cutter's Way. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe somebody yeah. going to come along and say this film speaks to the post-Vietnam era, you know, and film noir stature. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that would be nice. be nice for everybody that was involved in it because 
they gave it their heart and soul. You know, Jordan Cronenworth and Paul Gurion and Yvonne Passer and Jeffrey Fiskin, and I think that they were more uh, upset by its lack of of uh, popularity than than uh, than we as actors were. You know, I think they were mm. much more invested in bringing that kind of movie to an American audience. Mm. There was a lot of words in Cutter's way. There was a lot of dialogue. And I remember people making a point of that. You know, I remember Jeffrey Fishkin making a point and producer Paul Gurion making a point of that. There was a lot of verbal exchange back and forth. And um, mm. there was at one moment when there was a pretty powerful scene, it was supposed to be anyway, and then Jeff Bridges ad lib saying, oh, no, 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 not the leg, not the leg again. Please don't make the leg speech. And that was an ad lib that was mm. from, he threw in, he threw in there, in, maybe because, you know, he wasn't used to that kind of back, and he wasn't, you know, there was just a lot of, uh, uh, what do you recall, whatever you call it, dialogue that was mm -hmm. supposed to go forth between the characters. And I don't think that that was, the, the, that wasn't the usual back then. Mm -hmm. Things got pared down, you know. Things get pared down. Yeah. You know, I think cable TV actually today is bringing that kind of back. You know, people, actors are much more in command by by virtue of uh, what's coming out of their mouth. Yeah. As opposed to X-Men, you know, on cable. Right. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I see that I couldn't do. You know, it would take me a year to memorize some of that stuff that's coming out of today's actors' mouths. Mm. The well, I mean, did you you, you had you had some uh, your experience on on The Sopranos? What was what was that like? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there was a scene in which I'm supposed to describe. I think it's my last scene before I jump off the bridge or something like that. And we had a night, and and uh, I was going on about how this speech doesn't. One thing doesn't flow into the other. And the writers, God bless them, they were actually listening to me. And they thought that that was, uh, you know, insightful. Later they used me in a pilot that didn't go, so I don't know if they still had that opinion of what I was talking about. <laughs> but uh, at the time they were, like, impressed. And I think uh, James uh, Gandolfini looked at them and said, what the, what the, I, I can't believe you're listening to this guy. You know, go over <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 he's just an actor, you know. And, and uh, it, it was funny. It was funny that that you mentioned that because in that that's what that's what ended up in uh, Sopranos for me. Was mm. they gave me a big chunk of words, and I was looking at the first paragraph and saying, "How do I get to the second paragraph when I talk about?" just about killing myself or my girlfriend was a whore or prostitution with them. And they were looking at me and scratching their heads and going, you mean him? We didn't write it. We didn't write it. Well enough. And I'm going like, I just don't know how to make this transition. You know, and they were going like, what's a transition? You know, like, so maybe, maybe that's my problem. Maybe I just talk too much. Just stay the long just say what's down on the paper. Perhaps, you know, uh, but I, for for me, it's never been a problem. You're always you're always great. And, uh, and let me ask you one more question. I have to ask this just as a fan with Chili Seeds of Winter, uh, and I want to talk about the ending, of course. <laughs> the two different endings. 
there's the ending where you're actually, uh, which is actually available on YouTube somewhere. Uh, someone put it up there. Uh, the original ending of uh, Head Over Heels has them together. They they get together again, Charles and Laura. And then, at, of course, at the end of Chili Seeds of Winter, uh, you uh, you confront her and say, "Are you coming? Are you going to be with me?" And she says, "No, not really." And then you part, and all that happens is all we see at the end of the movie is you running. You're you're right. running, trying to run off the trying to run off the the hurt. It's not that it doesn't still hurt. It's that you get used to it. I actually think they both work. One says one thing that is supported by the rest of the film, and the other one says another thing that can be also supported by the. I I, I just think that's incredibly fascinating because I, I can't think of another movie that that, that has this feature of like <laughs> this another film story that has that has really two different endings that were released out you know that was released to the public uh, i just i i find it fascinating and i find the movie fascinating too just for a, a variety of different reasons and mostly uh <clears throat> the movie is great because of the uh joan micklin silver's you know unusual editing uh uh the the sort of flashbacks within flashbacks that, that are going on and uh and then uh and then of course your amazing uh your amazing interplay with with uh Mary Beth Hurt and the rest of the cast too i mean it's an amazing cast but uh you your scenes with Mary Beth Hurt are just electrifying in that film uh and particularly the meeting scene i have a girlfriend who when we're not together she lives a 300 miles away. She says she watches me in chilly scenes of winter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she does she, just to what? Just to just to uh, refamiliarize yeah. herself with you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's something in the relationship that works for her that she puts herself in the Mary Beth role or something, and you know, it's like having me around. <laughs> well, that's yeah. kind of sweet. That that that. That uh, that you know speaks to the power of the movie. I think uh, if I had to choose one, I think I would choose the one where it doesn't. You know, he he doesn't get the girl. Uh huh. Because because of the quality of his life, you know, because of the character of his mother and his, you know, I like Olive. Yeah. The, all the all the <laughs> peculiarities of his own of his life, and she's not. I don't know. There's not. There's not enough of her in her own world to bat, to match them up. Uh huh. Besides that, and he, also, he talks about her. He, he talks about her like she's an obsession. Yeah. Not like she's a person. Like you know. Yeah. Yeah, like and she's I a think cause. The movie the movie stands up on the fact that it's like this is what it's like to be maybe obsessively in love with somebody rather than realistically in love. Yeah. That plays, and that's, I think, more truly through the film than the, 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 the fantasy fulfillment of being obsessed with something that actually works out. Yeah. But, there, but I think there's, a, there's supposed to be a note of him being, and I didn't know if I even picked up on this when I was doing it, but there's supposed to be a difference between being obsessed with somebody 
and really actually loving them. Yeah. You you know, go figure. I don't know. You, you take <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Whichever one you like. I mean, but if somebody, if you fell in love with somebody today and you chased them around for a year and they were married and, you know, they said, hey, buzz off, you know, that's pretty much an obsession. Yes. You know? But yeah, if they I said, mean, okay, and they came around for a while and they went back to their husband and you were still in love with them, then I guess you would, would want it to work out. Yeah. And plus, you know, her character in the film, you know, is uh, she hasn't ex- explored enough of her own life uh, on her own, you know. Yeah, uh, right. To, so it makes more sense for her to want to do that before she gets involved with anybody else. And, and maybe maybe the waters have been poisoned so far, uh, you know, at that point for, for Charles and Laura, and it could never work out anyway. So I actually prefer the, the sadder ending. Great. You know, it's like, like maybe a movie for the price of one. Yeah. I'd love to see a Criterion Collection, uh, you know, redo of Chili Seeds of Winter. Where you know, they, they had the have... same thing. Which they had the same problem with uh, Cutter's Way. They didn't know how to end it. How were they going to – was there another ending that was not used? I think the other ending was what he just crashes through the window and dies. Or he mm-hmm. dies anyway, but the court is not the bad guy or something. They, But the, yeah. the fact is that, they, that while we were shooting the movie, they didn't really know how they were going to end it, like what the ending was going to be. Mm. Whether Alex was just nuts or whether he was really – on to something. I read somewhere, too, that there was maybe, like, some intimation that, that Arthur Rosenberg, you know, the guy that plays the uh, the J.J. Cord, yeah. you know, helper or whatever, uh, yeah. that, uh, that that he was involved with the, the murder and that he actually committed the murder instead of Cord. Uh, there was there was some possibility of that being in the film, but uh, Yvonne Passer decided that it would be better to end it the way it ended. That's another aspect of my career. I don't know how to end my movies. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't want to say bye to you, John. <laughs> I want to tell you, it's been a thrill talking to you, uh, and uh, I, I want to thank you for your generosity and for your uh, and for your films. I really... I'm not kidding. I, I've there's tons of your work that I'm not even touching on that that I love, like Heaven Help Us and uh, and again Mind Walk and Big and uh, so many movies. Uh, so I just want to thank you so much for your work and. Uh, well, thank you very much. I'm very flattered, and it's been fun talking to you. <laughs>